Hardware to Save a Planet explores the technical innovations that are giving us hope in the fight against climate change. Each episode focuses on a specific climate challenge and explores an emerging physical technology solution with the person bringing it into reality. I'm your host, Dylan Garrett. Hello and welcome to Hardware to Save a Planet. I'm very excited to be talking with Dr. Josh Silverman today, founder and CEO of Windfall Bio. We're going to be talking about tackling methane. Methane doesn't get nearly as much attention in the climate tech world as carbon dioxide, but it's actually responsible for about 30% of global warming, and it's 80 times more potent than CO2 at trapping heat. Agriculture is the biggest human-caused source of methane, and Josh and his team have found a way to support farmers while reducing their emissions. They do this with methane-eating bacteria and also, of course, some hardware that I'm excited to learn more about. Josh himself is an experienced startup executive and a biochemist with a PhD in biotechnology. He's been working with methane for something like 15 years and has contributed to big problems with science-led innovations throughout his career in things like drug development, clean fuels production, and alternative proteins prior to founding Windfall Bio in 2022. So Josh, it's really an honor to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for joining. Oh, thanks, Dylan. Really appreciate it. So you did your PhD at Stanford, focused on biochemistry, and then it looks like your early career was in the pharma industry. I'd love to hear, how did you go from drug development early on to focusing on climate change? Yeah, a couple major points. I mean, so first, yeah, drug development was great. We did, was able to take three different drugs from kind of early stage concept through INDs and phase one, two clinical trials. And what's interesting, even though the technology platforms worked, The drugs worked in early trials. Everything looked great. None of those drugs are on the market today. So got really frustrated with the amount of time, effort, and especially money needed to kind of bring those drugs into the marketplace. And so I really pivoted into the industrial biotech space specifically because I wanted to create products that could be commercialized within my lifetime and be able to bring things to consumers that had real impacts on their lives and not just drive in returns for investors. And certainly returns for investors are great, but personally just wanted to have a little bit more of an impact. And focused really kind of in the alternative protein space for a while, working on a company, Callista, that is doing larger scale production of protein from methane. But at the end of the day, you know, the climate's important, the planet's important, and wanting to have technologies that can sort of directly improve the lives of people and then improve the lives of my children and having them have a place to be. So it really made a lot of sense to focus more on a, a climate-based technology approach and, and a business model as opposed to just purely going for economic returns after a certain amount of time. Yeah, that's interesting. I looked at Callista and the alternative proteins and thought of it as a climate change kind of focused company. Did you think about it that way as well? Or Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, it, so it's absolutely, it's a climate change. Is, it's a more sustainable form of protein than many other forms of protein on the planet, but it's not sort of directly pulling climate gases out of the atmosphere, right? It's a much longer term strategy approach type thing. And yeah, the impact is there, but the same with, you know, with with many other types of sort of consumer switching applications, it's going to be challenging to get that to a scale where it can really impact climate all around the world. In contrast, what Windfall is doing is essentially taking methane as direct emissions and preventing it from getting into the atmosphere 
as well as actually actively pulling methane out of the air and reducing the warming effects of that on the, the planet directly. So in terms of, you know, how do we actually have a real impact to climate in an immediate way? That's really where the idea for windfall came. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a much more direct kind of it's- approach to fighting climate change. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And at least your first customers with windfall, but your first customers are farmers. And my understanding is with Callista, some of your customers were farmers as well, right? You were creating feed to support the agriculture industry for feeding livestock and stuff like that. Have there been some things you've learned about the farming industry from Callista that have been helpful in in kind of the product market fit for windfall? Yes, very much so. I think and. I'll say I've also seen a lot of counterexamples being here in Silicon Valley and seeing a lot of software-based startups who are developing solutions for farmers that have just crashed and burned because they don't mm-hmm. understand the value proposition of, of what a farmer really needs and what a farmer really wants. And that's certainly one of the takeaways. So certainly farmers want to be good stewards of the environment. Farmers want to be good for the climate. But at the end of the day, a farmer is still a business, right? And the farmers are going to do what is profitable and what makes economic sense for the farm. So you need to have a solution that makes sense from an economic perspective first, and then is also good for the climate on the back end. And as long as that business proposition makes sense, absolutely, farmers are excited to adopt it. They're excited to do things that improve their efficiency, improve the bottom line. As long as that aligns, and if that aligns with the climate, great. But asking farmers to lose money or to pay extra just to become more sustainable, just to become better for the environment, that's basically a non-starter. And that's a non-starter for pretty much every business, Mm -hmm. but farmers even more so. When you think about, you know, a farmer has one, maybe two opportunities to make money every year, right? They've got one, maybe two harvests, depending on what crop they're growing. And if something goes wrong with that, they're not making money until next year. Yeah, if that's your model, you are going to be very risk averse. You're going to be very careful about what are the types of things you're doing. And the amount that you can invest in fancy new technologies is not going to be very much. So making sure we're aligning the incentives there and playing into you know, what farmers need and giving things that actually help them operate on the farm with the added benefit of being good for climate as a secondary consideration. I think that's probably the biggest key learning, if there is one. Right. It can't be a green premium. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we've been working in this industry in, in renewables for, yeah, 15, 20 years. And yeah, this idea of the green premium, right, it's been around for a while. And as far as I can tell, it, it hardly ever gets realized, if ever gets realized. And, you know, at the end of the day, the product has to make sense, has to create economic value in its own if you want it to become successful. And just asking consumers to pay twice as much for something because it's now sustainable, that's proven pretty clearly that it it doesn't work. I mean, if you go and you talk to anybody on the street, 80%, 90% of the people will tell you, yeah, they want more sustainable products. And yeah, if this product could be carbon neutral, they would buy the carbon neutral version or the carbon negative version. Everybody wants these products. Everybody wants the supply chain to become more carbon negative. But then you start drilling down, okay, well, well, how much are you actually willing to spend on that? Are you, with your current purchases today, are you buying the more carbon negative product? And the the number goes from 80% who care about sustainability to less than 5% who are actually (laughs) willing to pay for sustainability. I mean, it's a huge gap. So yeah, I think that's really the fundamental learning here is we need to create processes that are economic first and good for climate has to come second, right? So absolutely, we need things that are good for climate. But that can't be the driver. That isn't gonna, the thing that's actually going to drive market adoption. 
Yeah. And I think it sounds like you've been able to do that with Windfall, make something that benefits farming, the farming business as well as the climate. And I'm excited to hear more about the business model. I first want to actually talk about methane a little bit. And maybe first with just thinking about your background, it looks to me like you've been working with methane back to, I forget what the name of the company was, but 15 years ago, you were making sustainable fuels using methane. And then I think Callista was also using methane to do this feed development. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what is that focus on methane in in your career and how does that lead to today? I'm a biochemist by training. So I've always been really interested in biological platforms as ways to kind of replace more synthetic chemistry, industrial chemical, petrochemical type approaches. And because biology is really powerful in making all sorts of really cool, interesting molecules, it just normally doesn't do it at the kind of scales that a petrochemical type process would do. And so in the 2010-ish timeframe, we saw a lot of push towards biofuels, replacement chemicals, things like that. And it was all based on sugar transformation, right? So you feed yeast sugar and they make fatty acids and you can turn those fatty acids into fuels. And the problem when I was looking at this, you see sugar, it's expensive. And then you're turning that into fuel, which is cheap. And economics 101 tells you that's a bad idea, right? And so when we look at these biological systems, like, well, we know we can make all of these really cool, useful molecules. We know we can make them in more sustainable ways. But because of the feedstock that you're using, the thing that you're transforming, it's never going to make economic sense because your starting point is always more expensive than your end. Again, that's a non-starter. And so the question was, well, what are the cheaper feedstocks that you could be using? Because if you can bring that initial cost down, then suddenly it opens up a whole lot of other more sustainable products that you could be making. And in this time frame, kind of, you know, the early 2010s, this is when we saw the, you know, again, it was the big biofuels push, but it was also the start of the fracking revolution, right? And you saw the price of natural gas in the United States dropping precipitously as the amount of natural gas that was being produced was going up. And so this became, this was and still is one of the cheapest feedstocks on the planet. The other big thing with sugars is the transport, like actually moving them around, getting enough of them into one place. And you actually spend more in both in terms of dollars and carbon footprint and actually moving the sugars from the point of production to where you want to actually use them and consume them. And natural gas is actually the only feedstock where we actually have pipelines that are sufficient to move it around the country. Trillions of dollars of infrastructure to actually move methane from one place to another, which is very few other feedstocks fall in that category. And we actually have pipelines that bring methane into literally all of our houses for both heating and, and cooking purposes. So, so I mean, the, the infrastructure is there to move it. The cost is low and the energy is very high. So that was really, yeah, that basis uh, company uh, started called Solaria, which was looking at thermochemical transformations. And what we have methane, it'd be great if we could make things. And natural gas is cleaner than many other petroleum sources. So being able to make petroleum replacements from natural gas is still better for the environment than, than not doing that. So you know, at Slurry, we were working on taking natural gas and using it to replace or to make uh, polyethylene plastics to eliminate the need of ethylene made from petroleum products and also to then make other you know, fuels and sustainable products of that nature. And that technically worked very well. But there's lots of other ways to make plastics and you know, we wanted to make things that are, are better for the environment. So 
that's leading led to the idea of Callista. Well, we can actually take that natural gas and we can turn it into protein and things that would otherwise be very difficult to make and create more sustainable sources for these other products that are environmentally friendly and healthier and all that that sort of thing. And so at with starting of Callista, basically we discovered that there are Solaria was a thermochemical transformation. Callista was founded on the idea of, well, we realized that you can actually feed biological systems directly with methane. And there are organisms out in the environment that eat methane in the same way that other organisms like yeast eat sugar. And you're able to make all the same types of biomolecules that you make from every other biological system, but starting from methane. And it's now significantly cheaper in terms of per carbon molecule feedstock. It's easier to get it there on site. It solves all of these other problems that you have with, with the sugar feedstocks and now produces a product that is actually, in Callista's case, is a direct replacement for high quality fish meal, which now doesn't require you going out and harvesting a bunch of fish from the ocean where you can actually produce high quality protein without the downstream environmental problems that come along with that. So that process works really well. The Calista uh, has now gone and built a 20,000 ton per year fermentation facility in China that takes natural gas and turns it into protein for animal feed and, and potentially for human food as well. But because of just the way that the scale and those things is set up there, the Calista process does use natural gas. And again, while that protein is more sustainable than many other sources of protein, specifically fish meal, you know, it's still not necessarily what you would say, you know, best for the planet. It's not carbon negative in the way that we would like it to be. And that's sort of where we're coming to at Windfall, where we're thinking, well, we know, as you said, going in, methane is a huge negative impact on the climate. Every ton of methane to the atmosphere is 86, worth 86 tons of CO2 over a 20 year period. Methane is very dilute. It's produced from all sorts of different sources, from farms to wastewater treatment plants, to landfills, to just melting Arctic permafrost. So because it's so distributed, it's hard to capture. But the organisms that we use or that we're finding when they're out in the environment, they're not seeing 99% methane natural gas coming out of a pipeline. It's not their normal food. They are normally seeing that dilute methane in the atmosphere or the stuff that's coming off of a, a swamp or a termite mound, which are other great large sources of methane into the atmosphere. And so trying to leverage that to really capture the dilute methane that is otherwise just very difficult for us to deal with. That was really the goal at Windfall and being able to approach this with a different set of organisms, a different fundamental approach and a different product. But at the end of the day, the fundamental process is very similar. And we're using a naturally occurring microbe that eats methane and produces useful, valuable products for the user. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So to play it back, if I've got it right, it sounds like you actually started focusing on methane because it was a very distributed, very easily accessible kind of input product that could be used to produce other things. But actually now you're focused on removing methane from the atmosphere because of how potent it is as a greenhouse gas. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So it started off as, again, it's, well, at the end of the day, I think everything boils down to economics, right? So it comes back to like the first definition of a sustainable business is one that makes money because if it's not <laughs> profitable, not going to be around and it's not sustainable, right? So all of these things have to start with a business model that makes sense or a revenue model that makes sense. And then again, it has to be good for the climate as a secondary consideration. So yeah, starting with the idea of methane as a better feedstock. And so the processes we developed there were economic 
to begin with and also better than. The ones at Windfall now we think are absolutely best for climate. And so we had to solve the business model part first, right? What's the product that we can make if your feedstock is distributed everywhere around the world? Again, we're talking about our, our feedstock swamp gas, right? And landfill waste and melting permafrost. Like, how do you actually build the business around that? That's challenging, right? And so that was the thing, like, how are you actually going to make money by capturing that? Or how do you incentivize people to capture that? And the realization we came to there is that many of the organisms that eat methane also fix nitrogen, right? So while they are pulling methane out of the air, they are also pulling the nitrogen out of the air and putting that nitrogen into the soil. And it turns out these organisms, this is their natural role in the environment, is they are literally the bottom of the food chain. Nothing else in the world eats methane. It's only these organisms, which we call MEMS, um, are, they're the only things that eat methane, and that's the only thing they eat. They don't eat anything besides methane. So they have a very, very narrow role in the ecosystem, and their role is really to feed everything else. So they're eating that methane, they're putting that carbon into the environment. And because again, they can't eat anything else, they have to provide all of the normal biomolecules that they would, that they need to survive, which involves fixing nitrogen. So they're using the energy from that methane, they're fixing that nitrogen, and they're putting all of that into the soil that basically seeds, they survive, but they also feed everything else. And one thing that basically every farmer in the world needs is fertilizer. And fertilizer is primarily nitrogen. And so realizing that we were actually making, as we're consuming this methane, we're producing a product that has use for every small farmer in the and large farmer in the world, and being able to have that made on site where it can be used, because most of these distributed methane locations are rural, they tend to be near farmland, that seemed to be putting two and two together of, of linking the consumption of the methane to the production of a useful product in fertilizer making that link was what was the light bulb moment for windfall. That's the business model. Mm -hmm. That's the solution to how do you make this a viable business model? Got it. Right. Can you say more about how does that work in practice? What do you actually provide to the farmers and what are they paying you for? Yeah. So the core business model is very similar to a seed company. So we sell the live organism, the, the MEMS, in a dried powdered form that the farmer, the business owner, and whether it's the landfill operator or it's a farmer, it's an oil and gas operator, or it's just somebody who wants to put it out in their backyard. In theory, that's all they need. It's, it's, they can take that powder, they can put it into the, the soil, give it access to methane. And again, it's a living organism. It needs its food. If it sees food, it will eat it, it will grow, and it'll be happy. It'll pull methane out of the air, put nitrogen into the ground, and so in theory, that's really all our customers need is just the live organism in the same way that a seed company, like in theory, all you need is the seed, the kernel of corn, you can plant it, it's going to grow and it's going to produce another corn plant. Now, in practice, there are other things that come along with it to make sure that the seed can be as successful as deficient did, right? And so we think about a lot of different technologies and hardware that we provide that help to supply the environments to make the seeds as happy and healthy and, and efficient as you can. And a lot of it is in terms of gas handling as well, because we have dilute methane. How do we make sure we get as much methane as possible to the MEMS to make sure that they have food to eat? And as if the wind is blowing and the methane blows away before the cells can actually get a hold of it, you're not going to produce as much fertilizer as, as you would certainly like to provide. So 
there is hooking, depending on the source of the methane and whether it's coming from, you know, a cow barn where you have just a fan and low pressure airflow and fairly low concentrations of methane coming out of the barn versus something like an anaerobic digester where you have still low pressure, but also very dirty gas. So higher concentrations of methane, but lots of other stuff like sulfur and other volatile organics that the cells love. It's actually more food for them to something like, again, an oil and gas facility where if you're dealing with combustion gas, now suddenly you've got a few percent methane, very concentrated stream of CO2 and water, which is coming out of the back of an engine or something like that. And you have it at several hundred degrees Celsius, which is not something that's great for biological systems. You can cook them the same way that you can cook any other living organism. So getting the hardware in place to channel the gas in the right way, make sure we handle the pressure drops for the equipment, make sure we do the heat exchange to get them to where the environment that and the conditions that are going to be conducive to the living organism is really important for those particular things. So again, in theory, all you need is the seed. In practice, there's a lot of engineering that needs to go around that. And the engineering, depending on the application, can be very, very different. The other piece that we see a lot is the monitoring and tracking. So, I mean, the the benefit that we have in terms of a climate perspective is what we're doing is very measurable. So we can have the MEMS that are living in basically, you know, a soil reactor or a contained reactor. We can have a gas stream of methane coming in. We can measure the concentration of methane and monitor the methane in the input stream. We can monitor the methane in the output stream. And we can know exactly what the footprint and the climate benefit of the scrubbing is. And the really nice part about this is there, because this, you know, every ton of methane that we capture or destroy, I mean, even if all we did was take that methane and turn it into CO2 and we didn't capture any of that carbon in the reactor, which of course we are, but even if all we did was just emitted at CO2, you can recognize all of that benefit right away. So every ton of methane that goes out is 86 tons of CO2. So by capture, by transforming and capturing that methane, right, you're immediately destroying over 80 tons of, of CO2 in that transformation. And there is no sequestration. There's no long-term risk because we can measure instantaneously the amount of methane that's being captured. And thermodynamics tells you once you turn methane into something else, it's not going back. That's not a reversible reaction. You're never in the environment that is that whatever you emit is never turning back into methane in any kind of scenario that makes sense. Yeah. So from a tracking, monitoring, and saying we want to censor the type of or sense the and quantify the exact amount of methane that's being destroyed or captured, but we don't have to deal with sort of the long-term implications of that most carbon capture projects have to deal with. Got it. Okay. Right. Yeah. We talk a lot about the durability of a carbon sequestration solution because, yeah, the tree is going to decompose and release carbon again. You're not worried about your MEMS your MEMS aren't going to decompose and release methane again. Exactly, right. Once they've converted it, it's gone. And then is, are your customers in the farming use case, are they able to sell like greenhouse gas removal credits? Is it similar to how somebody would sell carbon removal credits? Potentially. So, okay. Ours is a little bit of a weird situation because we're producing a valuable product and we're making a process that should be profitable on its own. There's no additionality. Yeah, the additionality means... It should not be, if once it's successful, fully commercialized and out there and adopted and de-risked, it should not be eligible for carbon credits. 
which is a, it's a weird catch 22, right? <laughs> right. The more successful we are, we're actually destroying our own credit market. It's obviously still a great thing for the planet. We want the credits to kind of drive unprofitable technologies because otherwise they won't happen. But yeah, our goal is to create a process that doesn't need credits. Now, in the short term, if somebody is running this thing, again, it's still risky, it's still in the development stage, we think yeah, credit should be available. And there might be cases where, so when we think about our customers, customers are twofold. So one is there's people who have the methane, and then there's the people who are going to consume the fertilizer. And if you're a farmer or a dairy farmer or something like that, that can be the same person, right? You're producing, you're capturing your own methane, you're producing fertilizer that you're going to use yourself. Great circular economy, improved efficiency, win-win for everybody. But there's other people who have a lot of methane who don't necessarily use fertilizer. So you think oil and gas or landfills, right? They're not doing a lot of farming per se. So in theory, they can be producing fertilizer and selling it to someone else. But if you're up in the Arctic or something like that, and you're, you have a lot of methane, it may not be worth it to transport the fertilizer somewhere else. So those applications might be more amenable to like a carbon credit scheme where you're just doing it for the general health of the soils, but you're not able to sort of recognize an economic value for it. And that would be a good situation for a credit market. Okay, that makes sense. I don't know what kind of like numbers of tons you can capture, but 80 times whatever, $600 a ton that CO2 <laughs> removal credits are going for right now with full permanence or like high durability. Yep, exactly. That starts to add up pretty quick. <laughs> yep. Okay. So maybe you've kind of already answered this question, but I was going to ask, I've read that something like 2% of climate funding is going towards methane mitigation. But so I was going to ask, what has it been like to fundraise with a methane focused company? But yeah, maybe the answer is that it's really just a, it's not necessarily about methane removal. You don't have to look at it that way. It's about making a good product for farmers. Yeah. Well, and I'd say candidly, we've been trying to get the windfall approach and get the company formed and founded and funded for close to eight years now. And yeah, the pushback from investors for the longest time was, yeah, we're just not that interested in methane. We have a mandate to deal with CO2 and we just don't think methane is that important. And that's been very frustrating. But then it was historically very frustrating. And you see again, yes, we absolutely need to do something about CO2. I'm not arguing that at all, but to the it really has sucked all the oxygen out of the room, pun intended. <laughs> and just everybody is focused on CO2 and everyone wants to do something that, and there's just, there hasn't been any room in the discourse for anything else. And I'll say it's not just methane. I mean, nitrous oxide is another huge climate gas associated with fertilizers that gets very, very little attention, very little talk because just all the effort is focused on CO2. And I still have conversations with funders today where they say, well, we have a, our mission is to remove carbon from the atmosphere, but we just don't do anything with methane. And even that just completely neglects that methane is carbon, right? And, <laughs> and somehow we've shorthanded it down to carbon dioxide is the only form of carbon that we care about. And therefore, that's the only thing we shouldn't be spending any time on. And you end up with this, yeah, 98% of climate funding is now going to CO2-based solutions, even though methane, it, so methane is getting 2% of the funding, even though it's at least 30%, depends who you talk to. Sometimes some people will go up to as much as 50% of the actual warming in the atmosphere today is happening from methane. So again, I'm not arguing at all that we shouldn't fund CO2, but absolutely methane solutions deserve more attention. And if you look at the IPCC reports talking about climate change and things like that, every single year, the modeled impact of methane has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So 
the story has been building. I think people are starting to realize and hopefully we're starting to move to an idea where methane-based strategies will start to become more accepted. And people will start looking at this as something that should sit side by side with other types of solutions. And like this is a big problem. There's lots of different ways to capture methane. We're all for more companies coming into the space. We need more and more shots on goal and different approaches and different ways of looking at it. Because again, methane is very diverse. It comes from lots of different places. So it's not going to be a one size fits all. So I'm all, this is my soapbox, right? I'm here for to tell anyone who's thinking of investing in the space, like absolutely, there's room for many methane solutions to be successful here. And they should be looking at other methane companies as well and really trying to bring more strategies to the table. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a really undertapped opportunity. Yep. So I want to hear a little more about the hardware. So maybe, and maybe we just focus on the kind of cattle farming use case, mm-hmm. if that's a useful way to do it. But so it sounds like if I have a building full of cows, there's a lot of, there's sort of a higher concentration of methane in that space. And you're taking, so then do you install some custom piece of equipment that goes and takes airflow from that and concentrates it on the MEMS or how does that work? Yeah, we can. So it again, it depends a lot. We try to do it as much as we can to fit into the existing hardware on site. And mostly that's the ventilation system. So when we think about a barn, cattle barn or dairy barns will have fans and existing because they need to keep the cows cool. They don't want the methane and things like that to build up. So they're already moving the air, which is the single largest expense in any of these types of climate approaches any type of CO2 direct capture or whatever, moving the air in the same, running the fans is the single largest expense that, that any of these things have. And so to the extent we can use the existing ventilation systems, that's a big win already. The biggest issues we have for hardware design is pressure drop then because again, these fans are designed to move air, but they're not designed to pressurize or compress or, or move it. So anything you put on the back end that you're trying to force the air through that can put a lot of strain on the fans and cause them to burn out if you're not careful with those sort of pressure drop approaches. So our reactors tend, we want things that are high surface area because we need to basically connect the MEMS to the methane and give them as much opportunity to eat the, the methane as possible. The limiting factor is really the mass transfer rate of methane diffusing from the bulk phase gas down to the specifics of where the cells are. So we need high surface area reactors that are also very, very cheap because again, you're going to take this stuff and bury it in the dirt at the end of the day. So you don't want something that's going to be expensive and it's going to be hard to deal with. So the one thing that cows emit on one end is methane. The other end is manure, right? And you're, they produce a lot of manure. And so those dairies, again, are ventilating the barns to get that stream of methane, but they're also collecting the manure, flushing the manure out, separating the solids from the liquids, the liquids end up going into the lagoons where they'll sit there and off-gas methane as well. So that's a second source of methane on the on-site at the barn or at the, the farm. But the solids are then collected and piled up as compost and then used eventually as fertilizer to grow alfalfa or other feeds for the cattle, right? So the, the farms are already fairly circular and good at collecting waste. Just the one thing they're not collecting is the methane that they're, is, is leaving. So what we're trying to do in those cases is actually close the loop there and connect to those dots. And so we can actually use the compost as a high surface area reactor system. And it's a perfect home for the MEMS, which normally like to live in the dirt. And compost is basically just kind of upcycled dirt, right? 
So the systems that we put in place in those cases are based on what's known as aerated static pile. I'll say quote unquote technology, but the idea here is to be as, as cheap and non-invasive as possible. So in these cases, it's essentially PVC pipe with holes drilled in it, as we can say is the simple version. Uh-huh. And what happens then is the, we have the farmers then pile their compost on top of these aerated static pile versions. And we essentially blow the air from underneath. So it trickles out through the compost pile. You get very high exposure. And we put the, the MEMS into the compost as it, before they're put on there. And then you get very high exposure, good residence time. The MEMS CD all of that methane. They're also getting a lot of oxygen, which they need oxygen to survive. And compost piles also need a lot of oxygen. So it's a win-win. And basically, the farmers can also save money by no longer having to turn the compost every couple of days because now you're aerating the compost directly. So again, the biggest challenge here is connecting the fans from the barn or from a covered manure lagoon, making sure we handle the pressure drop because you're piping it underneath a bunch of compost. And then we just let it sit there for a month-ish. Right? And the will they get that methane, they eat it, they put all that carbon and nitrogen directly into the compost pile. And then when it's done, it's composting process, the farmer just picks that up, takes it and spreads it on the field like they were going to anyway. But then they buy less synthetic fertilizer and ammonia because now they can measure exactly how much nitrogen is in the compost post-incubation with the methane. And now they just add less ammonia because they only need a certain amount of tonnage of fertilizer per acre per hectare, however they're doing it. So that type of aeration system, it's really about, again, connecting the existing infrastructure to make sure we get as much exposure of the MEMS to the methane as possible. Mm, So cool. I do love simple hardware solutions like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know how much methane is captured because you're measuring, you have the sensor on the inlet and you're capturing all the air coming off of it. Yeah. Yep. So we can put the sensor on the inputs. We know exactly how much methane is going in. We have flow meters. We know exactly how much air is coming in at any given time point. We can do, if you cover, you can put a tarp over the whole compost pile and measure the gas coming out to be Sure. Or you can just take individual representative samples of the gas flow coming out to see how much methane is coming out on a unit basis. And then we can also measure the carbon and nitrogen content of the compost post-incubation. And nitrogen doesn't come from nowhere, right? So we know because we know what the rates of nitrogen capture are, we know what the efficiency is, we can back calculate from how much nitrogen did the compost actually have to say exactly how much methane it must have captured. And then we can use that to essentially sanity check the error measurements and make sure everything is, you know, we can fully close that mass balance. The really good part about this, it it aligns the incentive. Like so many of the, again, if it's a pure carbon credit story, we get a lot of questions of, well, how do you know these people are setting it up in the right way and they're not going to just mess with the sensors and game the system, right? Because that happens in a lot of other types of solutions. Here, the value for the farmer, they're getting paid on the fertilized value. So if they don't hook it up in the right way, if they don't provide the methane, they don't get any nitrogen. They're not getting the value. Yeah. Right. They're not going to get the value for it. So there's an inherent incentive for the farmer to get to be as efficient as possible, to enclose the barn as much as possible, to keep the cows indoors as much as possible, all of that so that the methane actually gets to the pile and they capture the nitrogen. And it's not a this works or this doesn't work. It's very much a gradation, right? Every molecule of methane that the MEMS see 
they turn into nitrogen. So the more molecules you give them, the more nitrogen you get out of it. So the farmer's incentivized to make it more and more efficient, to push more and more methane and capture it from more and more sources because they're getting more value out of the same deployment. And once they've got it in place and they start producing, the incentive is there to do more and more and more and make it better. And there's no incentive to cheat because if they cheat, they're just going to get less nitrogen, which means they get less value. Cool. I love it. Is there anything else about the hardware technology we should talk about that we didn't cover? There are many other ways that we can think about the hardware. There are certainly other applications where we have, if you have a much more concentrated methane, say like out of an anaerobic digester, in those cases, we don't really think about compost so much. We want to make more concentrated sources of nitrogen. So in those cases, instead of growing the cells on compost, which we're then, again, just going to stick in the dirt, we can grow it on plastic beads or ceramic pellets or those a solid substrate. Cells will grow on the surface of that. And for those reactors, we think about this as a kind of a a trickle bed reactor. So we, because we want to keep them moist, but we want to keep high exposure to air. And so those reactors, we actually have the gas coming in from the bottom water coming from the top and you have this sort of bed of ceramic pellets that is static. So the water's trickling down, the gas is going up. So you've got some water, some air, but you know, very high surface areas. And you can get very concentrated material growing in biofilms on the surface of these pellets. And then periodically the farmer can come or the operator can come pull out, basically shovel out some of these pellets, hose them down. You get the nitrogen as a slurry, which is can be then dried or could be sprayed on a field, and the pellets can go back in the reactor and reset. So that type of solution works well for you know, the more contained sources or you know something that requires a more static operation, like you're talking about oil and gas, where we need temperature control and temperature change. So that's a, a slightly different format. And then on the other extreme side, if we, if we have very dilute methane, even less than you would find in the cattle barn or something like that. There, we're actually looking at technologies that look like hanging curtains. So you can, again, more, the big thing we care about is surface area. Like how do you, if you, you have dilute gas in a big volume, you've got to find a way to get very high surface area because you don't have a lot of molecules per unit volume. So you've got to be able to get as much gas as possible in contact with MEMS. So you can think about this as, you know, big hanging curtains in a barn, even the the curtains around the outside that people use today to contain the airflow and, and things like that for cows. And the bacteria, the MEMS can be basically sprayed on those and grow on the surface of that. And if they're just out there hanging in the environment, and then periodically, again, the farmer can come and either scrape them down or spray them, hose them down and collect the material on the bottom. And that gets us the, the type of surface area that we need. So those are also kind of cool and interesting different design features. But yeah, it's an interesting problem because we have, or problem slash opportunity, right? Where we don't need any energy input. We don't need any pressure. We don't need high temperatures. The one thing, the mandate I have, you know, no stainless steel. (laughs) We want processes that are cheap, that are easy to implement, that are, are simple. These are things that small farmers can deploy just as easily as big ranchers in Texas or something like that. And so it's got to be something that's cheap, easy, and and modular and scalable to all of these different opportunities. Wow, super cool. I love how simple it can be. And and just thinking about it relative to some of these CO2, you know, like a direct air capture system, and to your point, how much energy goes into blowing the air and then desorbing the CO2 from the reactors. And then you still have this gas that you have to figure out what to do with. Exactly. There's so much about 
your system that is really attractive from its kind of simplicity and durability. Yeah, the big case for me is scalability. If you want something that's going to address climate change, it has to be able to scale to trillions of cubic meters, right? And so basically, if your cost is anything non-zero, right, and then you multiply by a trillion, you get to numbers that are crazy really quickly. And, it's, and then we, it's just a non-starter. So this is where, just from a fundamental standpoint, why I think biology is the right solution. And even when we think about carbon dioxide capture, biology is still the gold standard for CO2 capture. Right? When you think the single largest source of voluntary carbon credits or even compliance carbon credits today is still planting trees. And the reason is because you think, what's the capex of a tree? What's the opex of a tree? Right? You plant the tree, it grows, it takes care of itself. If it's growing, it's capturing CO2, and the output is more trees, right? It reproduces itself. And so biology scales horizontally compared to how chemical engineers are always trying to intensify. And so like the other comparison is like, how do you intensify a tree? When you think about like, how do we do, you know, we don't think about an 800 degrees Celsius, 10 atmosphere pressure tree. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's crazy, right? You just, you plant a lot more trees, right? And you get a big surface area and each one is very slow. And, but because they're cheap, they're self-sustaining, and they go over very high surface areas, you get to really intensive processes in a way that makes sense and is sustainable, for lack of a better word. And so that idea of biology and climate together, and because we need things that scale cheaply, effectively, and with very large surface areas, but obviously we know trees work, we know plants work, we're just out of space for the trees and the plants that we have. But it turns out by these organisms in the soil, that's something we haven't really been leveraging and is an opportunity. Yeah, I love that way of thinking about it. Thinking about that scale, what do you have a vision in your mind about what kind of scale windfall bio will get to? And what sort of time frame is that? I mean, yeah, we expect to be scaling very quickly. And many of the customers we talk to, they're not interested in organic growth. They're interested in step change growth. Right. And talking to dairy brands that have thousands of dairies under their umbrella, they don't want to sell 5% of their products as low methane and healthy and sustainable, et cetera. They want 100%. And once it works, again, this is the, the benefit of an inherently profitable process. If it really makes money for the farmers to be doing it, there's no reason why every farmer shouldn't be switching over tomorrow. Right. There is no adoption curve. There's no change. There's no convincing. There's no outside funding agency that needs to approve. Literally every single farmer in the dairy network can turn the switch tomorrow and be capturing their methane and going on. So in our view, this is not something that's going to be sort of a you know 10%, 20% year-on-year growth. It's going to be 0% for a while, and then it's going to flip the switch and be 100% adoption. So that's something that we're dealing with in our own back end. We still have to provide seeds to all these people, so we need to get our production process up and running. We need to get our supply chain logistics ready because our expectation is it's it is going to be kind of an all or nothing scenario. In theory, if this goes well, we're going to have a lot of people who want a lot of material in a very short amount of time. So that's certainly our challenge to be able to mitigate that because we could become victims of our own success. And we create a lot of demand and excitement and then we actually can't supply people. We run the risk of destroying the market that we're creating. Right. So yeah, without getting into too many details, I was curious about that. Is the is Are you producing these MEMS in a kind of a factory setting is our goal is to do it using contract manufacturing. So these are microorganisms like a yeast and there are large 
installed capacity, manufacturing capacity for yeast growth, which is, you know, a lot of that is making ethanol and beer and, and that sort of thing. So we know how to grow a lot of yeast and there are places all around the world that you can grow those. So our goal is to be able to basically just drop into those existing fermentation facilities and be able to use that so that we can just rent space and make our material. There's some work that needs to be done to really validate that that's possible. So it's not a guarantee, but that's, you know, in theory, that should be very possible. So if we don't have to actually go and build our own facilities, that also speeds up our approach in the marketplace and allows us to find facilities all around the world that we can now produce the seeds that then will, in each seed, then it enables what, you know, 100 different farmers to be able to grow. So again, creating that backbone through a contract manufacturing network, I think will allow us to scale a lot faster. Yeah, that's good to have a resilient supply chain like that. Yep. So I have three more questions for you. The first is how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the future of the planet and why? I'm optimistic because I think there are lots of cool solutions that we haven't gotten to yet. So I'm always, we're seeing cool new technologies every day that, that come to the fore. So I'm optimistic that we will solve this problem in the same way that we've solved many other challenges for the species over the last thousands of years. I'll take it. Who is one other person or company doing something to impact climate change that's inspiring you? I, mean, I think to me, the most inspiring is Bill Gates. Obviously, he's really out there on the front lines. In particular, is actually looking at methane-related solutions. He's one of the few large funders out there who is doing that. And he's definitely, one, putting his money where his mouth is, and two, really thinking very creatively and out of the box and not necessarily just going along with what everyone else is doing. Yeah. What advice do you have for someone not working in climate today who wants to do something to help? That's an interesting question. So personally, so we see a lot of talk in the media about personal responsibility, personal carbon footprint, and people changing their practice, go vegan, that sort of thing. I'm not in favor of that. And I think this is not an individual action problem, right? This is not something that, you know, a single person's choices is going to have any type of large scale input. This is a collective action, industry-wide problem. And it shouldn't be the consumer's choice or, sorry, responsibility to go out and, and choose to buy a lower carbon product versus not. Again, it's not their responsibility to pay more for one product versus not. It's the industry's responsibility. They're the one that actually have the control and the process for how the process is actually run. And it's government's responsibility to actually go and mandate these types of solutions. What's really going to move the needle is putting pressure on the decision makers and the stakeholders, putting pressure on government, making sure we get the regulations in place, make sure industry has a level playing field to really meet those targets. And that's what's really going to have the longer term impacts more than any individual sustainable single choices. Whether I buy an electric car or not, whether I get a soy milk latte versus a regular latte, like those are things that make basically zero difference in the grand scheme of things. And I know that may not be a popular thing to say, but yeah, that, I think getting involved in the larger decision-making process, making sure we're electing leaders who are going to actually drive the regulations, oversee the industry, and pushing the industry to make sure that they're putting in place the best technologies to be more sustainable, that's how we're actually going to have impacts that make sense. You've just put to bed a recurring debate that happens in my household over and over. So I thank you for that. Oh, Where, okay. <laughs> well, Josh, thank you. That was really fun. And I love what you're doing to support farmers, but also bring more attention and have some impact on the methane problem as well. Thanks so much for your time. Yep, no problem. And any 
follow-up questions or anything that's not clear, just uh, feel free to shoot us an email afterwards. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Josh. Hardware to Save a Planet is brought to you by Synapse. To find out more about us and how we develop hardware solutions for the world's most ambitious companies, head to synapse.com. And then make sure to search for Hardware to Save a Planet in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere you like to listen. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Synapse, thanks for listening.